that. Uh, this morning we continue our way through the Gospel of Mark as we're going to finish up chapter 12. So if you have your Bible or a device you want to follow along with, we'll be at the end of, of Mark 12. And just by way of reminder, remember as we approach the text this morning, Jesus is in the last week of his life. He's recently had the religious leaders coming at him to test him, and now he's starting to correct the record some. Last week we saw that correction of the record with regard to their faulty expectations with regards to the Messiah and Jesus' call for them to trust in him. This week we're going to see Jesus expose the religious leaders, expose the teachers of the Jews. So let's see it now. Let's look in Mark uh, chapter 12 and starting at verse 38. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. He sat down opposite the treasury. He watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples, and he said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had. All she had to live on. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we pray, would you be present with us this morning? Would you use your words to expose this morning our self-reliance? Would you expose the way that we don't do what, uh, the way that we don't rely on you, that we don't find our identity in Christ Would you expose that in us this morning and help us to come running to your cross, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So this past week, I got to do what all of us, we we love to do probably, usually you get to do it twice a year if you're on schedule, you get to go to the dentist, right? Now, I don't know if you are like I used to be, because I'm better now, but I used to lie to my dentist. My, my guess is we probably have a lot of people in here who like to lie to their dentist. And, and you know what I mean? Like, you know the dentist appointment's coming up, and so maybe, if you remember, a couple of days before, you'll start scrubbing extra hard. Maybe you'll actually floss a time or two. You know what I mean? You want to make them look good, right? And I remember talking to a dental hygienist one, like, are y'all able to see? When, yeah, people's gums, you know, they're like all, you know, they're all red and everything because people are like cleaning like they never have before. It's obvious. They know that you're deceiving them and that you're lying, and so... A few years ago, I decided I'm just going to be honest. And so, like yesterday, or on Wednesday, the dentist said to me, he said, do you take really good care of your teeth, or is it just jeans? I said, it's just jeans. I mean, I brush my teeth twice a day, but I was honest with him. The the dental hygienist said, you know, it would be really good if you start flossing once a day. And I said, I know, but I'm probably not going to. And it's freeing to just be honest, but, but we tend to like to deceive others, don't we? We tend to do it not even thinking, and so we go and we deceive our dentists, maybe, and there's many others we deceive in much more important ways, I think, as we'll see this morning. But Jesus is exposing this morning the teachers of the Jews, the the scribes, for their deceptiveness. Look at verse 38. He says, beware of the scribes, the the teachers. He, He said, who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings 
in the marketplaces. You see, the, the scribes, they like to distinguish themselves by their, their dress. And as I was thinking about this, I was, I was thinking about my graduation from seminary. And Christine's going to put a, a slide up here of just a picture. This is, now, this isn't all of them because this is actually a few years later. But these are some of my seminary professors. And whenever they traipsed in for graduation, like some of them have like these elaborate gowns. And they have these elaborate gowns because these colleges want to set themselves off right, and distinguish themselves. So you have Frank James there in the front in that red and blue, which you can't really see very well. He's actually wearing like a full tuxedo underneath it, okay, and with this cape around. And then he has a hat that he's not even wearing in this picture, all to set off the fact that he went to Oxford, you know. And so Oxford has this elaborate gown, and so do many of the others. In a sense, that's what we have here in our passage this morning with the scribes. They, They wear these white... Um, flowing robes in order to distinguish themselves from everyone else, okay? They they want, whenever you walk by them on the street, they want to be known who they are. They want you to be able to say, hey, rabbi, father, master. They want to be recognized. They they want when they walk by for, you know, and people would sometimes, they would stand up because a scribe's coming by, a teacher of the law. We have to respect them. So they demand this kind of respect of others. And verse 39, they have to have what? The best seats in the synagogue, places of honor at feasts. But when you went to synagogue, you know, there they were. They were going to be right up front so everyone can see them. So you can see them. The scribes wanted to be seen. And if you invited them over for a dinner party, you better give them the seat of honor for that's what they demanded. Because why? Well, we are the scribes and we deserve it. Now, Jesus is beginning to expose them, but his exposure gets even more radical as you get to verse 40, doesn't it? What does he say about them? These scribes who devour widows' houses. Now, what does Jesus mean? Now, no doubt the the, the scribes, they thought they deserved to be compensated well for what they did, right? But there was like this oddity in Jewish law that, that they weren't supposed to get paid for teaching, that they weren't supposed to do that. So instead, what they did is they relied on people to support them, okay? They relied on donations. And in fact, the teaching of the day was that if you took care of a scribe, that meant you were really good, okay? Now, it should be no surprise who it is that's teaching people. If you take care of the scribes, things are going to go really good for you. It's the scribes that are teaching people this, right? And yet Jesus uh, says that, the scribes were taking advantage of one of the most disadvantaged people in their culture, the widows. Okay, ones who their whole life they had relied on their husband to help manage many spheres of their life, and now their husband was gone. And what happened? But these scribes would swoop in and take advantage of it to try to take advantage of the hospitality of these widows and their potential donations, if you will, to support their ministry. And as though that's not enough, and this exposure of uh, these scribes isn't enough, Jesus continues, he says in verse 40, they, for a pretense, make long prayers. They pray these long, elaborate prayers. But Jesus says it's for a pretense. It's, It's really all about so they can be seen, so that much can be made of the scribes, and people will think highly of them and respect them and... Jesus says, as you see there, they will receive the greater condemnation. He says there's going to be punishment coming for them. In a sense, James echoes 
Jesus' words in James chapter 3 when he says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. You see, these men were, were, were teachers of the Scripture, and therefore they are to be held to a higher standard. And Jesus says, the scribes, you need to understand the scribes aren't meeting this standard. They're, they're failed as teachers. We saw a bit of that last week. And they failed now what Jesus is exposing. Their character is flawed. They are flawed, flawed men. One commentator put it this way, and it's so helpful, and a bunch of other commentators picked up on this one commentator. What, what he said was that the scribes, really what they were into, and what they were, what they were really into was self-intoxication. The scribes were really all about self-intoxication. They were intoxicated with themselves. They thought much of themselves. It was all about them. I was reminded just this past week, I was listening to a podcast about uh, a church that has since disbanded. It was a big mega church. Anyway, at a staff meeting, this pastor stood up in front of his staff And he told them, as they're they're talking about the church and their philosophy and stuff, he said to them, I am the brand. That's what he said to his staff. I am the brand. This church is what? It's about me. Totally intoxicated with himself. Folks, if you ever hear that in the church, please run. Please flee. Please don't stick around. Now, as we think about the scribes, the scribes wouldn't have said that out loud, you know. They wouldn't have said, we are the brand of Judaism. But what Jesus is exposing is that if you looked at their hearts, that's really what their hearts were saying. It's about us. And you and I, if we're willing to be honest, we are often intoxicated with ourselves, aren't we? We can be too. And that intoxication can lead us to deceive others. But understand also we deceive ourselves into thinking somehow we're better off than we think we are. And our hearts are hiding. Just think about it. Do you like the idea of parading around in nice clothes and people complimenting you on it? Or nice shoes maybe even? Do you like the idea of Others addressing you with a fancy title and showing great respect and honor towards you. Does that sound attractive? Are you willing to do as the scribes did and advantage yourself to the disadvantage of others? As they did with the widows, where you're more consumed with building up your own wealth than concerned with those who don't have and who are in need. Do you want, as the scribes did, to think others are... Others, you want others to think they're spirit, you're more spiritually mature than you really are and think highly of you. Are you, ultimately, are you intoxicated with yourself? And I, and I don't just mean so that others will think much of you, but also so that you intoxicate yourself so that you think much of you. And we can be very blinded to who we really are. Last Saturday, driving back from Georgia, it was a little after 6 a.m., and we'd, we're just into South Carolina a little ways. And when you get into South Carolina on 95, it turns from six lanes down to four lanes. So there's only two lanes on the right-hand side as you're going. And it's like a little after 6 a.m. And suddenly I'm in traffic. 
And I wonder, what in the world is going on? The whole reason of getting up so early is so that we're not in traffic and, and we're going like 60 miles an hour in the left lane and I start getting frustrated because we're not doing good time and we got to get home and, and I want to be back in my house. And, and so it was like this for probably about 15 minutes and slowly, it finally, it clears up because I get all the way to the front and I see what's happened. There's somebody who's been driving in the left lane at 60 miles an hour and as I pass the person, I... They're just driving, not a care in the world about the 15 minutes of traffic back behind them. About 30 minutes later, I was engrossed in an audio book, and I guess somewhere in the process, I'd probably hit the brake pedal so the cruise control came off, and I was driving in the left lane, and I look back in my rearview mirror, and I see a whole bunch of cars back behind me. And I look down at the, uh, the speedometer, and I'm going about 62 miles an hour in a 70 mile, you know, I'm, I was like, I am the guy that I was so frustrated at. That's me. I suddenly was the person. We don't like that. We like to think, oh, it's that person. That, they're the bad driver, not me. I'm good. It's everybody else that's the problem, right? And so we like to get dressed up. We put on the finest clothes, if you will, metaphorically speaking, or maybe really physically speaking. Speaking, we put on our best clothes. We say, at least I'm not like them. We try to cover over our failures so that others can't see them, so that we can't see them. The last thing we want is to be exposed for who we really are. And so we dress up in faux righteousness, a fake righteousness. We wear masks, if you will, so that we can't be seen for who we are. It's like we're at a masquerade party, hiding our identity. You see, we can be an awful lot like the strides, getting dressed up in fancy robes, whatever that is for you, to cover up the fact that it's really all about us. It's not Jesus' righteousness that we're really after. We're really after our own. We're really, if we want to be honest, so often intoxicated with ourselves. Now, this is nothing new. It's been this way since the beginning, since the fall. You remember Adam and Eve, after they ate the fruit of that tree, what did they do? Verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from his presence, from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. And the Lord called to the man and he said, where are you? And he said, I heard you. I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. I hid myself. What's Adam and Eve's first instinct to hide? Hide, they try to make coverings for themselves, right? To cover themselves up. They dress themselves up right here in the very beginning. They, they go and they immediately try to put on a mask so that God, the all-knowing God, you know, how silly is that, trying to hide from God. But not only do we put on a mask with others, we even try it with God and pretend like we're better off than we are with our faux righteousness. We have this instinct, if you will, to cover ourselves. Our problem is, is that we cover ourselves with the wrong thing. And we fail to get at the real problem. The real problem that we have busted up in broken hearts that need to be healed. We cover ourselves. We, we put on fine clothes. Maybe our houses. We put that on. Your kids. Oh, if they can be good enough. Our, our money. Our jobs, our success, our prestige, you fill it in. What do you try to clothe yourself with so that others can't see you, so that you can't see yourself, so that you can feel like you're a success, so that you've made it? 
We unfortunately aren't that much better than the scribes or Adam and Eve after the fall. That's why I think the the next part of our passage about the the poor widow is going to be so helpful for us because after uncovering our shame, when we we get down and we see what it is that we clothe ourselves with, when we uncover our, our intoxication with ourselves, we begin to see it for what it really is, then we can go to the one who can perfectly cover us. Now, I just want to say something. Some of you might see and you might have even just heard talking about shame and self-intoxication at the same time. You might think, aren't those two totally different things? They're not. They're really two sides of the same coin. Whether whether you struggle with self-pity or you struggle with self-glory, you're struggling with the same thing because your concern is really yourself, isn't it? That is your focus. What do we do with this? What does Jesus help us do with this as we look at our passage this morning? I remember quite, this is a number of years ago, I was back in seminary, and a pastor had taken me out to breakfast, kind of interviewing me for a potential youth pastor job. And I remember in the context of that, he said something that then was striking, and I wish it hadn't have been. It said something about my heart right then and the work that needed to be done on it. But he said, in our youth ministry and whoever we hire, I am not interested in behavior modification. I am not interested in us having good, quote-unquote, kids. Kids that look good on the outside. And I remember that striking me at the the moment, like, of course you want the kids to get better, right? And the sad thing is, and I I speak of this as as a parent who struggles with this at times, sometimes I think us as parents, we would be happy with just behavior modification, if our kids would just be better, right? Sometimes we'd be happy with that, and not that we don't want more. But if you were to settle, would you settle for it? Behavior modification is what the scribes were all about. Modifying the outside to make themselves look good. Jesus is concerned about something much deeper. He's concerned about the heart. And what he shows us, with the widow, is that if your heart is changed, the outside changes too. It can't help but. Let's look. Verse 41, he sat down opposite the treasury. He watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. Now just place yourself there on this day, okay? Jesus' disciples are sitting on a bench or something along one wall, and there on the other wall are these, we believe, 13 trumpet-shaped chests. And people would step up to one of these chests and put their money in, okay? Now remember, there was no folding money back then. So as people would step up one after another, you could literally hear how generous people were. You could see and hear their generosity. No doubt the disciples are sitting there next to Jesus. You know, maybe at some point they're like, wow, that person must really love God. Did you, I mean, did you see how big that bag was? Did you hear that? Did you hear how generous that individual was? And then you have Jesus, verse 42. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. Remember the setting here. Not only is this the temple, which is always going to be somewhat busy, this is approaching the Passover. An extra busy time. People are coming in town, and this is their opportunity to give. There may have been long lines waiting at these 13 trumpet-shaped things to to put in your money, okay? People may be waiting. 
And then this widow, poor widow, steps up and she places two small coins called leptons. She places these two tiny coins. I mean, so small that they're about the size of like a racer on the head of a pencil. That's how small these little coins are. Tiny, almost imperceptible, worth, worth less than one one hundredth of a day's wage. Not worth much at all. That's why the ESV translates it a penny. And she takes these two tiny coins and drops them in. It would have gone completely unnoticed, wouldn't it? You probably couldn't even hear it clink when it went in. Amongst all the other, everybody dumping in their money. And Jesus called his disciples to him. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had and all she had to live on. Now back in verse 43, did, did you see the infinite emphasis that Jesus places here? Truly, I say to you. That's a phrase that's usually left for whenever something really important is about to be said. Really important. This that Jesus is talking about is a really big deal. These two tiny, almost imperceptible coins are one of the most significant, if not the most significant financial gift in all of human history. Do you get that? Sit on that for a second. These two lines, one of the most important donations in all of human history. I love how Sinclair Ferguson responds to the scene. This is what he says. He says, there's something magnificent in Jesus' response. Did he smile as he heard the almost inaudible tinkle of those, the widow's two coins falling into the treasury? Did he say, Peter, James, John, Andrew, come here. Did you see that? That's almost the perception we get here in our text. Did he actually go over to the widow, now astonished at the attention she was receiving? We don't know. But we do know that he said the poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. What a reversal of the disciples' point of view. What a riddle for the crowd to puzzle over. What an unexpected encouragement for the widow, that this should be the Lord's assessment of her giving. Two tiny coins. Why is Jesus so impressed? Sometimes we don't understand the economics of the kingdom. The economics of the kingdom are upside down from the, this world that we live in right here, right now. All these people stepping up, they were given out of their abundance. But she, she gave out of her poverty. What I think Jesus is really getting at is the heart. The heart is what is central. Earlier, we spoke about the scribes and ourselves, right? The way we like to parade around, we, we get dressed up, we put on our masks so that we can have the appearance of being good. And Jesus is saying, no, it's, it's not about that outer stuff. That's not my primary concern. My primary concern is your heart. And if your heart is right, Things flow out of it like it does for this widow who gives out of her poverty. You see, each individual, as they stepped up to these, to these places, as they step up to, to give their money, as they drop it in, their heart begins to show. 
Now, it may not be apparent to the disciples. Disciples think, oh, they're giving great. But to God himself, the hearts are very apparent. Their heart shows. Many of them gave what would seem like a lot. But for them, it didn't really stretch them at all. It was easy for them to give what they did. It didn't really affect them. It didn't cause them to be any more dependent upon God. The widow's gift required her to be dependent on God. Do you see the the juxtaposition there? Her gift, the widow's gift, is a real picture of, of that call of Jesus that we've heard throughout the Gospel of Mark. That call, if anyone, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. When the widow gave, her heart showed. Just like the scribe's heart was showing when they were walking around in their flowing robes, the widow's heart shows. When she gives these two tiny coins, it should have been apparent for all to see, all who knew her. She didn't have this to give. Quite frankly, she could have gotten by with just giving one. And she gives two. She gave as one who was totally dependent. She gave as a woman of faith. I think she's precisely the type of person that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians when he says this, each one of you must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You want to know what a cheerful giver looks like? It looks like this poor widow. That's what a cheerful giver looks like. You want to look like, know what it is for, to look like the ones giving reluctantly or under compulsion? I guess that's everyone else stepping up. Now, that's not to judge everybody. That's not the point of that moment. But she is the ultimate example of a, a cheerful giver. While many were, were stepping up to those trumpet-shaped receptacles, uh, with their ma- they were stepping up with masks on, hiding behind their abundance. And they dumped in, you know, they dump in the whole bag full of coins. And it was just really masking the truth. It was making everybody think, oh, they must be a really good person. But it was also telling themselves a lie. Because they were dumping in all that change. Oh, yes, I am very generous. Isn't that what those folks would have thought? Oh, I am a very generous person. Look at all that I gave. And yet the widow steps up. And she steps up in a very different way. She steps up in a sense unmasked. She's not parading around. There's no pretending for her. There's no one to go to to react like the disciples might have been as the big bags were being dumped in, like, wow. There's nobody to say wow whenever she drops in those coins, except there was one person who said wow. Her Savior. As she dropped those two little times, he says, Wow. Everybody else dumping in who knows how much money and, and this poor widow dumps in this change and, and he, he says, wow, did, did y'all see that? Did you see what she just did? You know how incredible that is. How could she do this? How could she give even when she didn't have? I think she understood the scriptures far better than the scribes did and the rest of the religious leadership. She knew, I think, the way that the scriptures spoke about her and spoke about her regularly. 
as one of the most vulnerable members of society, as a widow, and, and the way that her fellow Israelites were supposed to care for her. But not just that, ultimately, I think she knew of God's concern for her. Maybe she even had Psalm 68, verse 5, memorized. Father of the fatherless, protector of the widows, is God in His holy habitation. Instead of parading around in her mask, she came without a mask, not pretending. Because she understood that she was covered, that she was truly cared for by her great God. He had clothed her. I have no doubt, too, that she was longing and looking forward to the Messiah. She was looking forward to that day, as, as Tolkien would say, when everything, everything sad would come untrue. She was longing for that day. A little while ago, we dropped off Adam and Eve. We, we left that story. They were, they were in trouble, naked and ashamed, right? trying to clothe themselves, trying to cover themselves up, trying to hide. But what does their great God do? He has some difficult words for them in Genesis 3, for sure. And he tells them that there are going to be some very serious consequences to their sin. But also, as you know, right there, in the immediate aftermath of them blatantly disobeying the command that God had given them, he promises them a rescue, doesn't he? He promises them a seed that's going to ultimately crush Satan's head. He says that one of your children, one of your great-great-grandchildren, whatever it is, is going to crush Satan's head. He is going to be your Redeemer, your Savior. Of course, ultimately, speaking of Jesus, right? He promises that one day Jesus is going to come and ultimately pay the penalty for their disobedience to pay the penalty for, for their exchange. You understand the exchange that Adam and Eve made on that day. They had a beautiful relationship with God. And they exchanged that beautiful relationship for the deceitful promises of the serpent that their eyes would be made wise, that they would be wise in their own eyes. They opted on that day to be intoxicated with themselves for it to ultimately be about them. And it's to those who made that exchange, who chose themselves over God, that God promises salvation, that He promises a rescue. It's to us, too, that He promises that rescue for those of us who have constantly go our own way, we do our own thing, and we're enamored with ourselves, to say the least. Towards the end of Genesis 3, there's a wonderful little picture painted in verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin. And he clothed him. This is but a picture. What a beautiful picture. The ones who had just sinned, who had just betrayed him, he clothes. He covers. And of course, it's but a picture of the way that we are clothed ultimately now in Christ. You see, I think the widow... While she certainly couldn't have understood everything that we're saying this morning, she didn't have all the background and all the pieces to put together. She did find her security. Where? In her great God. Not in herself. Not in her ability to cover things up. And it's that that allowed her to give out of her poverty. You see, as we're gathered here this morning, 
we hear and we have before us the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That God sent His own Son into this world so that He could go to His death and rise from the dead, conquering sin and death so that we might be washed and clean, so that that we might be clothed ultimately in His righteousness. And yet we continue to struggle, don't we? We so often continue living our own way, so often living out of our own righteousness. Even this side of the cross, we can often become intoxicated with ourselves, can't we? So often we we struggle to have faith that even begins to look like the widow. A faith that truly trusts God, our great God, who gave everything for us. And isn't that, in a sense, a bit of the answer? Knowing how he gave his very own self, the Father willingly sent his only Son, Jesus willingly gave everything for us so that we could be justified. That is, he he gave to us. He he not only, he, he finds us not guilty, which is amazing right there, right? That you and I are considered not guilty because of what Jesus has done, because we've been justified, but we are also given something incredible. We're given Jesus's righteousness, his record, given to us. Not your record that you stand on, but Jesus's. And yet, we so often we, we attempt to exchange that that's been given to us for something else. Or we, we're tempted to believe that it's not really true. We need to hear and be reminded of the words of Paul. For as many of you who are baptized into Christ, as many of you who have come to truly know Christ as your Savior and Lord, have put on Christ. Have put on Christ. If you're in Christ, if you're truly a believer, you've already put Christ on. He already clothes you. We don't need to put on the old clothes any longer. They don't fit. Those clothes that are centered on ourselves. Can we begin, can you and I, can can we begin to learn to enjoy and live in the clothes which which we've already been clothed, that we've already been given? Think about it. Look into the mirror. What do you see? What do you see when you look into the mirror? We, you and I, we need to learn to see An image of God, redeemed by the blood of His Son. We need to learn to see that. And when we can begin to truly, I think, when we can begin to truly understand that truth of what we've really been given in Christ, that we've been clothed in Him, we don't want to put those other clothes on any longer. When we understand this truth, change begins to happen. Change that comes from the inside out. The scribes were trying to do it the wrong way. From the outside in. And the widow comes as one whose heart's in the right place and her life is so completely transformed by her dependency, her love for her great God. 
that she gives to him all that she has. When we begin to understand the truths of the gospel, the truth of what we really have and how we are clothed right now in Christ, change takes place. Change that allows us each day to hopefully be a little less intoxicated with ourselves. And more and more taken up with Him and who He is. Our desires, our longings begin to look more like His. Who do you see in the mirror? Are you trying to cover things up? Or you can you begin to live out of who you really are in Christ? Understand how much you are truly loved in Christ, truly cared for. You see, if we are in Christ, we already have it all. Do you believe it? I pray we all do. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we need you today. We confess that we so often are consumed with ourselves, consumed with our own glory. But Father, would you continue your work on our hearts, we pray helping us to die more and more to ourselves and live more and more to you. Would you convince us more, even this day and even this moment? Would you convince us more that the gospel is really true? Would you convince us more of who we really are in Christ, of all that we have in you? Would you teach us in areas of our finance, for sure, but in all areas of our life, would you teach us, help us to learn to give out of our poverty and not out of abundance? Oh, would you continue your work? We pray we need you this day. We pray this all in the matchless name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.